Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening in to the second podcast on behalf of the Faculty of Pain Medicine, which is aimed at a general anaesthetic audience. To introduce ourselves, my name is Helen Makins and I'm a pain medicine anaesthetist in Gloucestershire. I'm also the lead for the Essential Pain Management UK project, which is a teaching project run by the faculty um, and it's aimed predominantly at medical students and foundation doctors, although it's very relevant for anybody thinking about and teaching pain. And I'm joined today by Dr. Douglas Natouche, who's also a pain anaesthetist working in Torbay in South Devon. Doug has been an FPM examiner for quite some years and has been running ePain for the college over the last five years. Hi, Doug. Uh, hello, Helen. It's nice to be back podcasting again. Uh, and as a background, um, Helen and I and the team made the first podcast for the FPM last summer. We had no previous experience and really we were asked to do it when all the conferences shut down due to the pandemic. Uh, but we've had some very good and useful feedback, and we have learned that we need to be more focused, shorter, uh, which is what we're hoping to do today. So I understand we're talking about prescribing nerve pain or neuropathic pain drugs perioperatively. Is that right? That's right, Doug. We agreed that our title would be Prescribing Drugs for Nerve Pain for Anaesthetists. And uh, really, we're hoping to give some practical advice today, I think, about prescribing in neuropathic pain. And the two main things that we wanted to achieve are firstly so to help everyone recognise the drugs coming across them perioperatively and also perhaps to develop a bit more confidence in prescribing these medications. And we've agreed that we would base what we're talking about on the NICE guidance for the pharmacological management of neuropathic pain in non-specialist settings. And I guess by non-specialist here we're meaning people who maybe are not so familiar with the antineuropathic agent prescription um, and not specialist pain anaesthetists. Um, so the first thing it might be useful to think about is what sort of scenarios we might consider prescribing antineuropathic agents for in the perioperative period. And um, I make no apologies for using EPM uh, or essential pain management sort of uh, framework here because I think it really clarifies the thought process that I personally would go through when thinking about making these prescriptions. So the first thing is about the duration of the pain, the second thing is about the type of pain, and the third thing is about the cause for the pain. So thinking about the duration, really very straightforward, and uh, dividing it up into either an acute pain or a chronic pain situation. And uh, obviously most of what we would be dealing with in the perioperative situation will be acute pain. And we do know that there are some operations that are more likely to cause acute neuropathic pain than others. And those kind of operations would be clearly anything involving a direct trauma to the nerve or a surgery to the nerve, such as an amputation. Um, but other operations as well, which are perhaps uh, less obvious, such as total knee replacement, breast operations and thoracotomies. Equally, we can have patients coming for acute procedures who have chronic pre-existing conditions and some of those cause pain in their own right and may not be well controlled and may also possibly be exacerbated during the inpatient stay. So that's what I wanted to say about sort of splitting it into acute and chronic, if you like. Second thing is the, the etiology of the pain. So is it a nociceptive pain or is it a neuropathic pain? And obviously what we're talking about mainly in this podcast is neuropathic pain. And the things that we would be looking for to identify neuropathic pain would be the descriptors as used by the patient. So when we ask the patient what they're feeling, they would use words such as burning, stabbing, stinging, um, electrical shock type sensations. Basically anything that sounds slightly unusual and not what you might expect from whatever procedure they've had. 
And the second thing that I'd be thinking about um, when trying to identify neuropathic pain is whether the pain seems to be responding as I might expect it to normally to my standard management. So clearly, if you're used to doing a particular surgical procedure and anaesthetizing for it, then you would have a, an idea in your head of the normal sorts of uh, responses that patient would have to particular doses of medications. Um, and if that isn't happening, I guess that would be a bit of an alarm bell in my head thinking, oh, maybe there is something neuropathic going on here. And then the third thing to think about, um, which is a little bit more obvious perhaps, is um, whether it's a, a life-ending situation. So um, particularly whether it's a cancer or a non-cancer type pain or whether the life expectancy is shortened by whatever the problem is. Um, and the main reason to think about this would be influencing the choice of drugs in the um, sort of medium to longer term, uh, particularly when thinking about the prescription of opioids and discharging patient home on opioids. Um, so I think that would kind of be the thought processes that would go through my mind with regards to identifying the neuropathic pain and thinking about the likely and most appropriate treatments for it. Um, perhaps before we talk specifically about the drugs, Doug, we should just recap on the NICE guidelines for neuropathic pain. And I always think that this reminds me of that George Orwell quote from Animal Farm, that all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Because essentially what the NICE neuropathic pain guidelines say is that you can use any anti-neuropathic agent within their list. Um, but the bit where, where some are more equal than others really, to me, um, applies to the side effects and the tolerability of these medications, as well as the potential benefits. So just because a patient doesn't respond well to one medication, um, in other words, they might have side effects or it doesn't work, that doesn't mean that they necessarily won't respond better to one of the others on the list. And the list I'm talking about includes amitriptyline, nortriptyline, duloxetine, gabapentin, pregabalin and tramadol for short-term rescue use only. And yeah, as I say, NICE says try one. If it doesn't work, try another one, with the exception of trigeminal neuralgia, for which they recommend carbamazepine because the uh, evidence for that is stronger in that particular condition. One other thing to think about before we get into the detail of the prescribing why would we choose one of these medications over another and how would we decide how to start? So there are a few things to think about. The first thing would be the side effect profile. Um, obviously, some of these medications will be contraindicated due to pre-existing medical conditions or side effects, which we'll talk about in a minute. Second thing would potentially be cost implications. Some are cheaper than others. Um, the third thing would be problems potentially with concerns regarding addiction and diversion of these medications. And the final thing that might go through your mind would be prescribing implications. So since 2019 in the UK, the gabapentinoids have put in, been put in Schedule 3 or Class C, which has some implications for um, writing prescriptions, probably more in an outpatient setting. Um, but if the patient's going to be leaving hospital on these medications, that might be relevant and might be something that you want to consider. So shall we think a little bit more about the detail of this? Um, Doug, do your colleagues prescribe many of these medications on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, I think, yes, uh, my anaesthetic colleagues do, but I'd say it's probably mainly part of enhanced recovery protocols we have. So, for example, we have an enhanced recovery protocol for hip and knee surgery, uh, specifically one for day case hips, which I'll reference later, actually, developed by the orthopaedic GERFT or Get It Right First Time team. Uh, and they really have pre-printed drug card X's with anti-neuropathic drugs in it where appropriate, but mainly really amitriptyline. 
And we found that these pre-printed med sheets, really alongside education, is a really helpful way of supporting our anaesthetic colleagues to prescribe really helpful but less familiar drugs. Um, we did used to have pregabalin in the protocols, but it was really removed after a, system, after a systematic review showed that it wasn't actually effective. It didn't really help pain, actually. And another review showed it didn't help prevent nerve pain. So if you couple that with some local audit work we'd done, showing dizziness and unsteadiness with the previous package, including pregabalin, was a really unrecognized problem. It prompted us to think it again and take pregabalin out of the protocols. But I mean, otherwise, uh, generally, as you said, Helen, you know, people may be on pre-existing drugs for nerve pain, and we did generally leave them on them. Uh, although local audit perhaps unsurprisingly shows that if you've got a chronic pain problem before you have surgery, you're probably more likely to struggle with perioperative pain. But I mean, do you have similar protocols in um, Gloucestershire, Helen? We definitely do, yes. Uh, I have to admit, it's not something that I use regularly, but I know we've definitely got a similar setup that seems to work very well. So, I mean, how would you actually go about prescribing amitriptyline, Helen? I mean, it's the most common drug for nerve pain, really. So how do you do it yourself? Yeah, it would definitely be probably my first choice unless there was a particular reason why it was contraindicated in the patient. Um, the main reason for that is it seems to be um, readily available, it's inexpensive, um, and it can also help sleep, which is sometimes an advantage when people are struggling with pain. And I guess the main mantra when prescribing any of these medications would be to start low and go slow. So I would usually start with 10 milligrams in the evening and gradually titrate it up um, from there. Um, and the maximum dose I would think of using would usually be 70 to 75 milligrams of amitriptyline at night. Uh, 75 milligrams is a good number because it happens to fit with the tablet sizes. Um, and I always warn of the side effects, obviously, when starting to prescribe any of this. Um, the first thing to say is that it quite often causes drowsiness. Uh, that, as I said, can be advantageous if it's happening overnight and the patient is struggling to sleep otherwise. But it can be a problem if they're still feeling drowsy in the morning, a bit like a hangover effect. And I would often suggest taking it perhaps a bit earlier on in the evening to try and counteract that. Um, some of these side effects do wear off with time, by the way. So uh, if it's not too bad, um, then patients may choose to persevere with it for a bit and, and see whether they get used to that. I also always warn people that it can take up to two weeks to have an effect and four to six weeks for a maximal effect. And that's really just to uh, make sure that their expectations are realistic and they don't give up on it too quickly, assuming that, that it's tolerable. Uh, obviously, being a tricyclic antidepressant, um, these medication, this medication does block the reuptake of serotonin and noradrenaline, as well as being a competitive antagonist at the acetylcholine receptors. And that's what causes the side effects, all of those actions. So um, we would avoid using it with other serotonergic agents. Uh, it can cause tachydysrhythmias. It can cause a raise in intraocular pressure. So watch out for glaucoma. Uh, and urine ret retention is another one that can be a problem, particularly postoperatively. And I guess the other thing I have in my mind when I'm prescribing amitriptyline is that there is an alternative, nortriptyline. Um, and in my experience, that can sometimes be better in terms of the side effects. Uh, essentially, it does its the same mechanism of action. Um, it's slightly more expensive uh, and the dosing is exactly the same. So it's quite easy to switch from one to the other. So I think that's how I would prescribe amitriptyline. Doug, do you want to talk a bit about gabapentin? Yes, okay. I mean, perioperatively, I'd probably mainly use pregabalin, um, and I'd only really use it, actually, if somebody's on a reasonable dose of amitriptyline and they're still struggling, um, and actually combination therapy is, is a good next step. And in fact, actually, often 
perioperative opioids can be useful to a degree with neuropathic pain, and they can sort of help bridge an analgesic gap while you're getting medication for neuropathic pain properly established. I mean, with pregabalin, I would usually start a healthy adult on about 75 milligrams twice a day, increasing up to 150 milligrams twice a day. And I'd usually start the night dose or try to trade up the night dose first to see if it's tolerated before moving the daytime dose up. I don't normally use more than about three to 600 milligrams, but you've got to be really aware there can be very significant cognitive side effects above 300 milligrams, and particularly in the elderly. So, I mean, I would absolutely agree with you, Helen, that the secret to these drugs is to start low and go slow. And in the elderly uh, or people with comorbid disease, you might want to start as low as 25 to 50 milligrams twice a day and come up really slowly. Um, the alternative is gabapentin. That's more three times daily prescribing. Uh, again, it works in a very similar way through the same receptor systems. The alpha-2 delta receptors are basically their calcium channel blockers, really. Uh, but gabapentin has a saturatable uptake and is a well-tolerated drug, generally. Um, and its dosing is pretty well described in the BNF as well as pregabalin. Great, thank you. And I guess uh, one of the advantages of gabapentin can be that you can start really gently with that, can't you, and uh, gradually increase, as you were saying. So, yeah, that might be um, one of its advantages. So it's uh, interesting, actually, thinking about pregabalin. That it has actually, in recent years, become a bit of a street drug of misuse. And there are alerts now around addiction. So do you have much experience of that, Doug? Well, I did do a pain and addiction clinic for about 15 years, and we became more aware of pregabalin I think being a more of a problematical co-drug of abuse rather than necessarily on its own. But I mean, unfortunately, it's sometimes referred to now as the new Valium. And it does seem to cause some mood elevating effects or a bit of a buzz that I'm not sure gabapentin does. Uh, so where it's being misused is often in combination as a street drug with strong opioids, benzodiazepines and alcohol. And in fact, deaths with those combinations of drugs in the UK have been going up a lot over the last few years. Um, and that's quite a worrying trend. Now, I'm not sure everybody's necessarily going to be aware, but pregabalin is also authorised and marketed as an anxiolytic, which gabapentin isn't. So pregabalin has had a much wider audience of use to start with, really, in the sense it's used in mental health quite a lot, where gabapentin wasn't. Um, I mean, I don't think... I wondered if we'd missed discontinuation symptoms with gabapentinoids and dependency, but I think it might be possible that my sort of outpatient use has been to slowly titrate in and slowly titrate out. And that tends to mitigate against discontinuation. And that was so that people could find out whether the drug was useful or not. I think I'm much more aware, in fact, of discontinuation with uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressant drugs or SNRI, serotonin and noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors, because they can um, cause quite troublesome uh, withdrawal effects in my experience where tricyclics don't. But I think, you know, when you are prescribing, Helen, you're absolutely right. You need, and you need some sort of safety checklist. And mine is, particularly with anti-epileptics or, or general drugs for neuropathic pain, is are you pregnant or might you become pregnant? Because you certainly don't want to use anti-epileptics in people who might become pregnant in the first trimester. Are you at risk of self-harm or overdosage? And have you been at risk of dependency or drug misuse? And I think I would probably add to that, and we might talk about it later, is are you clinically depressed and actually need an antidepressant to help your mood? as well as something for nerve pain. So you've got to weigh up all these different factors when you're prescribing. But as you said, the um, patients and the numbers needed to treat tell us that they don't always work, but actually rotating around to try to find the most effective drug with the fewest side effects is, is, is really what we actually have to do. Absolutely, yeah. It's a bit of trial and error to some degree, isn't it? So um, let's just summarise where we're at so far. 
So what we've said really is that medicines for neuropathic pain are useful for treating postoperatively when we've identified a neuropathic process. Uh, we said that individuals tend to respond differently to different drugs in terms of the advantages and the side effects. We've said that there's no significant evidence for preventing neuropathic pain developing by prescribing these medications. But we have said that pregabalin has also not been, sh not shown, not been shown to be effective in preventing postoperative pain after knee arthroplasty. And we would normally recommend amitriptyline as the first line, titrating up to about 75 milligrams daily. And the time frame for that, and with all these medications, would be very dependent on the age and comorbidities and response to the medication. And gabapentin and pregabalin, again, can be used and would be gradually titrated up, again, depending on the response. So, Doug, uh, we haven't discussed duloxetine and tramadol yet. Do you want to talk a bit about those? Okay, well, we'll start off with duloxetine, then, then maybe go on to tramadol. I mean, NICE recommends duloxetine, uh, which is a serotonin noradrenaline reuptake inhibitor, uh, antidepressant, modern antidepressant drug in neuropathic pain, really is an alternative to TCAs like amitriptyline, but probably with the best evidence of its use around diabetic neuropathy. Uh, I mean, the advantage is it's actually quite well tolerated, particularly into therapeutic doses for depression, which amitriptyline isn't. So it's quite a useful drug for treating depression and neuropathic pain when you really want to try to help both. Um, I mean, normally it comes in about 30 milligram tablets. And the way I would prescribe it is to titrate in, you know, to around about 90 milligrams, probably about up to 120 milligrams maximum. And again, you could divide the dose if people prefer that morning and evening, or people could take it as a single dose. It depends very much what they want to do. Um, I think the downside to duloxetine is not actually when it's working, because it's very good, it's when people want to come off it. Because SSRI and SNRI drugs can cause basically electric shock or neuropathic-type symptoms if they're abruptly discontinued. So you do need to sometimes taper it down to deal with what are basically antidepressant withdrawal symptoms, which can confuse people, a bit like coming off opioids, where you get more pain sometimes from cold turkey. You know, the discontinuation symptoms can sometimes make people think their neuropathic pain is getting worse. But, you know, if you taper down, people can come off absolutely okay. I mean, my only kind of quick plug here is a real plea. Don't please co-prescribe antidepressants. There's no evidence to show this actually helps in clinical depression or pain. You simply up the possibility of side effects. So really be careful you don't actually start an antidepressant if somebody's already on an antidepressant. That's when it's good to get some advice. Thank you. And I guess that brings us nicely on to tramadol, actually, uh, thinking particularly about the interaction between drugs, because tramadol also interacts with duloxetine and SSRIs. Um, NICE recommends the use of tramadol for rescue in neuropathic pain. How do you feel about that, Doug? Uh, well, I think as a sort of short-term rescue drug, it, it, it's maybe got a place. I mean, I would kind of say it's a mixed receptor drug which provokes mixed responses among doctors sometimes. Um, and patients can sometimes do very well and sometimes they don't. I mean, it's also now a controlled drug, which, again, you know, makes its prescribing, particularly in the community, a lot more difficult. Um, I mean, it's got opioid receptor activity, it's got some metabolite activity, and it's got SNRI activity. Um, but I think what I would say is, is that while it can be a useful rescue drug, be very cautious about using it in the elderly, and particularly people with vulnerable brains, as it can actually, in my experience, cause hallucinations uh, in some people and can really worsen toxic confusional states. And also just bear in mind that opioid studies tend to be fairly short-term, and so I'm probably slightly more biased, Helen, by seeing people who've been taking high-dose, maximum-dose tramadol for years, who then, when they're trying to come off it, 
you actually get a double uh, withdrawal effect, which can be really difficult because you have a sort of combined opioid and SNRI withdrawal, uh, and that can make it really quite difficult for people coming off. Absolutely. So kind of a mixed review there, I think, would be fair to say. Maybe reasonable in the short term, but more of a problem in the long term. I guess my experience would be that there have been some occasions where I found that tramadols work quite well when other opioids have struggled, um, particularly in patients with acute pain. And I've always thought that that's probably because of the serotonin action and perhaps the antineuropathic action of the tramadol. But the general advice, it seems, probably from both of us, would be to use it carefully short-term in neuropathic pain, which is really what the NICE guidelines say with regards to rescue remedy. Um, I think it's also important at this point maybe to think a little bit about the consequences of starting anything post-operatively. Um, we are all aware of the problems with high-dose, long-term opioid use. Um, and I guess for tramadol, the same as all other opioids, we should be maintaining the same standards of uh, making sure that we have a plan of how long the patient's going to be on this medication, um, particularly if they're going to be going home. And, you know, thinking also about whether it's necessary to taper the medication down rather than stop it abruptly, as you were mentioning. And it's really important to communicate this to primary care. Um, and I think often around the country now that's done in discharge letters. Our acute pain team in Gloucestershire actually tend to liaise directly with the pharmacists in the GP surgeries. Um, and they will even give them a call um, to discuss things with them if they're particularly worried about a particular patient. There is one other drug that we haven't touched on at all so far because it's not in the NICE guidelines, but it's something that I find people um, are maybe a little bit more hazy on, actually, and that's the medication Tepentadol. Um, is that something you've got much experience of, Doug? Well, I do use it, but I don't really use it perioperatively, to be honest. Um, but I think... Uh... What are your thoughts, Helen, here? <laughs> yeah, I, we do use it in Gloucestershire. Um, it's used a little bit in acute pain, but more actually in chronic pain, where we have a specific um, guideline for it. Um, I guess just to give a bit of history and background, it's been around in the UK now for about 10 years, I think. Um, there's still relatively little evidence comparing it against other medications, with the exception of oxycodone, which is a bit disappointing. Um, its it, mechanism of action is a mixed opioid and noradrenaline reuptake inhibition. And it's that combined mechanism of action really kind of makes you think that it might be effective for mixed etiology pain. In other words, you know, the opioid aspect of it might be helpful for nociceptive pain and the noradrenaline effect more for neuropathic pain. The other thing to mention is that it does come in immediate release and modified release, release versions. So, you know, just like ox, oxycodone and morphine. Um, a few potential advantages of it. So it's not a pro-drug, and that potentially makes the efficacy more reliable. It's metabolised in the liver, but there are no active metabolites. It actually has 50 times less affinity at opioid receptors than morphine, but it's only two to three times less potent. So what that actually means in reality is that um, there's a less opioid load for the same amount of analgesic benefit. And the reason for that is due to this synergistic, what's well, thought to be a synergistic effect between the opioid action and the noradrenaline action. Um, and that's an advantage because it tends to mean fewer side effects. And uh, studies have shown that's particularly fewer GI side effects. There have been a couple of Cochrane reviews uh, in the last year or so in 2020, um, and they were looking at the use in chronic pain and cancer pain. And essentially, both of those summarised that uh, it seems to have similar or maybe slightly better analgesic profile to oxycodone, but fewer GI side effects, as I said. 
There has also been a systematic review published last year, 2020, by an Australian group, um, and that was published in the Clinical Journal of Pain. And they concluded that the immediate release to pentadol was as effective as other opioids at higher doses for acute pain, but again with fewer GI side effects. So some potential um, advantages to it there, but I think the, the use of tepentadol is not very widespread at the moment in the UK. Uh, Dosing-wise, 50 milligrams of tepentadol gives equivalent analgesic benefit to 10 milligrams of oxycodone, which would be equivalent to 20 milligrams of morphine orally. Um, I would just put a caveat on that. Um, the reduced opioid receptor affinity means that if you try and switch between opioids, then it becomes quite tricky. So, in other words, if you used an equi-analgesic dose of tepentadol to replace morphine or oxycodone, the patient then may withdraw because the opioid um, effect is that much less, even though the pain relief would presumably, hopefully, be the same. Uh, as I said, we do have a protocol for prescribing it in chronic pain in Gloucestershire, and that says that we should use it when uh, standard opioids aren't tolerated or if they're ineffective, particularly with a patient with neuropathic pain. So it's expensive. Um, there is less evidence for it than other medications, although over time this is obviously increasing. And it might help if side effects from traditional opioids are a big problem or if there's a mixed picture in terms of the etiology for the pain. Anything more that you wanted to add to that, Doug, at this point? Uh, probably back to pentadol, only to say that when it was first introduced, it was very much um, promoted as not causing serotonin reuptake and side effect problems if you combine it with antidepressants like SSRIs or SNRIs, uh, like fluoxetine or duloxetine. Uh, in fact, it does, but just at a lower incidence, really. But uh, it, it's another opioid. It, it, it has uh, some a place. Some patients find it's well tolerated. But as you said, Helen, you've got to be quite careful. I, mean, uh, I think opioid rotation is almost another podcast, but suffice to say, it's just not an exact science. And the rules of thumb are helpful but the often quoted equianalgesic doses aren't really based on good quality literature and they're not always stable uh, in our both directions as the responses actually depend to a degree on how long and how high dose an opioid people have been on before, how tolerant they are and how chronically sensitised they were to the opioid before the change. So as well as dosing issues with opioid rotation, actually you can see withdrawal symptoms sometimes, as you mentioned, Helen, particularly if you're abruptly changing from one to another, even if it's actually supposed to be of a similar efficacy. And also tepentadol to know isn't in current NICE guidance, but I think it's useful to discuss alongside tramadol. Uh, and finally, I said I would reference um, the uh, orthopaedic get it right first time, um, uh, things I said about earlier and if you want to find out more about particularly day surgery, hip and knee replacement, please go to the British Association for Day Surgery or BADS, B-A-D-S, website, which you can look up. And there's stuff you can download there, including booklets about how to, uh, uh, booklets about the learning from um, the, the, the centres which have been really pioneering uh, day surgery, hip and knee replacement. So, uh, But I think that's probably just about wraps it up for me, actually. Helen, any more thoughts? or? No, that's it, I think. Um, just to summarise, really, that uh, using the NICE neuropathic guidelines mean that essentially any of the anti-neuropathic medications we've talked about would be appropriate um, to try for a patient with neuropathic pain, bearing in mind their potential side effect profile and obviously the patient's comorbidities. Um, and if you've tried one and it doesn't work, perhaps consider trying another one. Go slow and, and start low. That was our other main mantra, I think. So I hope that's been useful. Um, thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you very much to Doug for actually writing a lot of this script and uh, pulling the whole thing together. And I hope we just speak to you again soon.
Okay, thank you. Goodbye and thanks, Helen. Okay, goodbye. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.